Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Ve sallallahu ve sellem ve barak ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahümme alimna ma yenfa'una ve anfa'na bima alemtena ve zidna min fadlika ilman ve ta'liman inneke ala kulli şeyin qadir ve ba'd. Elhamdülillah, this is our March session of Ask the Imam. And this is the last one before Ramadan. So we won't be having one in April. So the next one will be in May, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. And we're going to take about four or five questions tonight, inshallah. The first question, it says, Assalamu alaikum, I hope you are well, inshallah. What are the parameters of Ahlu Sunnah? How is Ahlu Sunnah defined? So Ahlu Sunnah, we say Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'ah, the people of the prophetic way and the community. And this question requires uh, quite a lot of unpacking. And we've tackled this question somewhat in the October session of Ask the Imam. So I would refer the questioner back to that class, that Ask the Imam session in October. We talked at some length about the parameters of Ahlu Sunnah wal Jama'ah. But I still wanted to answer this question, albeit from a slightly different angle, just for the benefit. One of the great Shafi'i scholars of Baghdad, by the name of Abu al-Mansur Abdul Qahir al-Baghdadi, who died in the year 1037 after the Hijrah, he wrote a very important book and a well-respected and widely read book among the ulama. And this book is titled Al-Farq Bain Al-Firaq. The differences between the different groups within the ummah. And this book fits under the genre of what we call heresiology or the knowledge of groups and sectarian ideas and whatnot. And the aim of his book was to catalog all of the different groups that had emerged within the Ummah from the earliest period until his time. Now he has an advantage in that he's coming rather late in Islamic history. He's coming in, he dies in 1037 after Hijrah. So that's a little over 400 years from our time. And that actually gives him an advantage because although he's coming later, he's seeing in the past many other groups that that came. And in that book, he also sought to define the parameters of Ahlu Sunnah wal Jama'ah in contradistinction to these groups. And he has a very beautiful passage in this book that's worth going back to from time to time. Because in it, after clarifying the, the salient beliefs of the Sunni majority, the Siwadul A'zam, the overwhelming majority of the Ummah, he says, that Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'ah is comprised of eight different types of people. Eight. Not beliefs, not ideas, different types of people. So you can look at this as the various groupings within that, um, under that umbrella of Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'ah. He says, number one, and I'll paraphrase this, the first group he says, is the group that has comprehensive knowledge of the issues pertaining to Tawheed, prophecy, 
and the rulings related to the divine promise and the divine threat, al-wa'ad wal-wa'id, and so on, the conditions of ijtihad, al-imama, meaning leadership in the ummah, and so on. So this group is defined, this is the theologians, the, the scholars who are masters in the field of theology. So this would mean the theologians uh, according, within the framework of uh, the school of Imam Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari, Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, the Ash'ari'ah, the Maturidiyah, and the Fudullah al-Hanabila. That's the first group, theologians. The second group, he says, are those, um, uh, second group among them are the Imams of Fiqh, the Imams of Fiqh from both Ahlul Ra'i, so that would be the Hanafis, and according to some, the Madikis to an extent, and the people of the prophetic traditions, Ahlul Hadith. And here, Ahlul Hadith is not talking about a group that emerged in India. We're not talking about the Sadiq Hassan Khan, that group. We're talking about the general body of Ahlul Hadith as an approach to fiqh. That's very old. Imam al-Shafi'i is the great Imam of Ahlul Hadith in that sense. Uh, among those uh, fuqaha who took the school of the Sifatiyah, meaning they f- affirm the attributes of Allah Ta'ala, and they have proper belief in the Qadr, the divine decree, and they avoided extreme hyper-rationalism. So he goes on to describe these ideas. He says, they, this group includes the companions of Madik, Ash-Shafi'i, Abu Hanifa, and Ahmad ibn Hanbal. So the second group within Ahl-Sunnah are the Fuqaha, the jurist. The third group, he says, are those who gained a comprehensive knowledge of the routes of the reports and the Sunan recorded from the Prophet ﷺ. They distinguish between that which was sahih, rigorously authentic, as w- but, and that which is weak. They knew the factors behind the praise or disparagement of hadith narrators, and they did not mix their knowledge of this with anything of the blameworthy innovations found uh, of misguided people of desires. So this is the muhaddithun, the muhaddithun, the scholars of hadith. That's the third group. The fourth, he says, are those who gain comprehensive knowledge of most of the fields of literature, adab, al-adab al-arabi, grammar and morphology, following the way of the imams of the language, such as Khalil, Abu Amr, Ibn al-Ala, and Sibawai. So this is the fourth group within Ahl-Sunnah, the grammarians, the masters of the Arabic language. They are by and large, they're all Sunni, alhamdulillah. The fifth group, he says, are those among them who gained comprehensive knowledge of the various modes of recite, reciting the Qur'an, as well as the various ways it is interpreted according to the way of Ahl-Sunnah, free from the blameworthy interpretations of Ahlul Ahwa, the people of misguided desires. So this group is the Mufassirun, the scholars of Tafsir. By and large. So who do we have? We have theologians, fuqaha, muhaddithun, grammarians, mufassirun. And now we come to number six. The sixth group within Ahl-Sunnah. He says the sixth group among them are 
Al-Sufiyyatul-Zuhad, the ascetic Sufis who gain true insight into the nature of the world and suffice themselves with little, who gain direct experience. And he goes on to describe their states. And he says that their words reflected the two paths, the outward expression and the spiritual allusion, the, the ishara, in the manner of the people of hadith. And he goes on to describe them in, in praiseworthy terms. And then this is the sixth group. So, al-Sufiyat al-Zuhad, al-Ubad, min ahl sunnah The seventh group, he says, are those who stand vigilantly in the battle trenches, the thughr, the battle trenches. So think about this. Uh, you have people who man the border areas of the Muslim empire, guarding the Muslim empire from any incursions by enemy forces. These were the people of ribat, ahl al-thughr, right? The people who man the trenches and who guard the areas surrounding the Muslim empire. He calls them the people of Ribat and Jihad. And this is, of course, a group within Ahl-Sunnah. And the eighth group, he says, are those in the lands in which the ways of Ahl-Sunnah dominate, as opposed to those areas in which the ways of the people of vain desires dominate. So here he means Awamu Ahl-Sunnah, the general body of Sunnis, general Awam al-Nas, just everyday people who are from the Sunni majority. So this passage is not defining the articles of faith, what makes a person a Sunni, but he's describing the large body of Ahl-Sunnah and uh, who they represent. So the ulama of theology, the fuqaha, the muhaddithun, the mufassirun, the nuhat, the, the grammarians, Ahlul-Lugha, the, uh, the Sufiya, and the people of ribat and jihad fi sabilillah and awamun nas general body as the prophet sallallahu described them siwadul a'zam the overwhelming majority of the ummah so for those who want to more, have more detail about the actual content then you can refer to the fard ain classes where we talked about aqidah you can also refer to the uh, ask the imam session for october where we explored this in a lot more detail. Next question. I came across a fatwa about drop shipping, that it is haram. I didn't quite get it. Will you please explain it? I didn't know what drop shipping was until about four or five months ago. I'd heard it, you know, as a term, but I never actually knew what it meant, never gave it any thought. So asking around, it seems fairly straightforward what dropshipping is. So the answer I'm going to give is based on the accuracy of the description of what it entails. So dropshipping, from what I understand, is a supply chain management technique where the retailer slash seller isn't keeping the good in stock, but they're simply transferring the customer orders and the shipment details to either the manufacturer or the wholesaler, and then they ship the good directly to the customer. How are they making money? They're making money because through their website and the pictures and description, they are presenting the item online 
according to the retail price. They don't have it. They don't own it. If a person places an order for that item, they then place an order with the wholesaler for the wholesale price, and they have it shipped to that person. They're not keeping it in storage. They're not working on behalf of the retailer or the, or the wholesaler. They don't own it. They're making money by selling it, being this intermediate between that person and the wholesaler. So that when the wholesaler ships it out, they paid the wholesale price, and their profit is that difference between the wholesale price and the retail value. So I mean, that's the gist of how drop shipping works. If this is the form that we want to call drop shipping, where you don't actually buy the goods, neither from the wholesaler nor the manufacturer, and instead you're advertising it online and selling it online for the retail price, and then you place the order for the manufacturer to send it to that person, well, that would be haram. Because you're buying the thing after the fact. So when the transaction between the person online and you takes place, you're, what are you actually selling? You don't have anything to sell. This is gharar. You're buying some, you're transact, they're buying something that you don't even own. You don't have tamlik. You don't have possession of it. You don't have ownership of that thing. Likewise, you're not an agent of the manufacturer or retailer. You're not a broker working on their behalf for a set price. You don't own it, and you're not working for them either. What exactly are you selling? What exactly do you have? You have nothing. So in that description, this would be gharar and would be haram. The only way to make that legitimate and halal is if you acted as a broker representing the retailer or the manufacturer or wholesaler, whoever, you act as their wakil, so you're a broker on their behalf, in which case you ask for a commission for the brokerage agreed upon in these transactions. And that's legitimate. The only other way is if you own, you buy a certain amount of this item in the whole, with the wholesale price, you have tamlik over, over it, you have ownership, it's yours. And then you sell it for a retail price and you make that profit. So this is bypassing actual ownership and is bypassing uh, acting as a wakil for someone else and trying to make money. So that form would of what they call drop shipping would be unlawful because you don't have ownership of it and it's, it's not in your possession nor are you an, an agent working for the retailer or manufacturer. Wallahu a'lam. Uh, next question. The arrangement of ayahs in a surah is tawqifi. Is the arrangement of surahs in the mushaf tawqifi too? So to answer this question, we have to explain what does tawqifi mean? What is this question getting at? Now, tawqifi, they mean, when you say tawqif, it means that that thing cannot depend on human judgment. That thing can only be through revelation, right? Right. So, for example, the common example of what is tawqifi, the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The names of Allah ta'ala are tawqifiyya, meaning 
You know the names of Allah Ta'ala through wahi, through Qur'an, or through sunnah. You can't make up names for Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. You can use descriptors, but you cannot make up names because those names have to be revealed in the two sources, either the Qur'an or the sunnah. That's a common example of something that's tawqifi. So tawqif means you have to halt at the revelation. You have to stop. So the questioner is saying that the arrangement of the ayat within a chapter of the Qur'an is tawqifi. So alif lam mim comes before thalika al-kitabu la rayba fi. Right, it's not the other way around. That order from the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah until the very end, the order of ayat is tawqifi. It's not subject to human judgment. It is based on wahi. That much is agreed upon. So the questioner is asking, is it the same thing for the order of chapters in the Mus'haf? So you open the Mus'haf. What's the first chapter you open up to? Surah Al-Fatiha. And what's the last chapter? Surah Al-Nas. Was Surah Al-Fatiha the first chapter revealed to the Prophet ﷺ? No. Was Surah Al-Nas the last chapter? No. So the questioner is asking, is a very good question. Is the arrangement of the chapters in the Qur'an, in the Mus'haf, also tawqifi? So there is ijma'a, consensus, that the tartib, the arrangement of the verses in each surah, is tawqifi. As far as the chapters are concerned, that is a matter of ikhtilaf. The scholars differ over this. Al-Imam al-Zarkashi, the great Shafi'i master, the author of Al-Burhan fi Ulum al-Qur'an, concerning the sciences of the Qur'an, he mentions this issue and the opinions of those who say it's tawqifi as well and those who say that it's not. So some say that the order of the chapters is according to the ijtihad of the Sahaba. There are some who have that view. There are many who have that view. There are others who say in support of this that the Mus'haf that was in the possession of Imam Ali was actually in the order of revelation. So it began with Surah Alaq and then it had Mudathir and Qalam and Muzammil and like this. So that's one of the proofs they used to say that the arrangement was not Tawqifi but it was Ijtihadi. It was the product of human judgment. Which chapter would go first in the compilation in the written form of the Mus'haf? Um, others said no. Others said no. They said even the tartib of the chapters is uh, tawqifi and not subject to human ijtihad. However, you have the more or less accepted opinion, the dominant position mentioned by Ibn Atiyah and others, who says that the, it is conceivable that the arrangement of some chapters is tawqifi and others are ijtihadi. So there are some chapters in which revelation, meaning the words of the Prophet wasallam, dictate that they are in a certain order, and then there are other chapters in which there is no specific uh, order for it to be in this particular arrangement. 
So for example, Tiwal, the Hawamim chapters, Hamim, right? These are coming in a certain order, a very specific order. Uh, as well as the Mufassal chapters coming at the end, these are in a, in a very particular arrangement as expressed in certain hadith. So that's a way of reconciling both views or taking both views and applying it to some chapters and not to others. So that would mean that some chapters are arranged according to prophetic command and other chapters are arranged by the Sahaba uh, according to their own ijtihad. And that is the view of the jumhur, the majority. Wallahu subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam. Okay, the next question I found really interesting for a couple of reasons. The questioner says, Assalamu alaikum, why did Musa alayhi salam, or why, why did his staff turn into a snake? Why not a lion or any other ferocious animal that could inculcate more fear? Allah knows I'm not trying to be blasphemous. I like that last part. They want, to, they want to convey that this question is not trying to cast doubt or to make any issue of what Allah has revealed. They're just wondering about the hikmah, the wisdom behind the staff of Musa turning into a snake and not into some larger and scarier creature like a lion? That's a good question. And if a person asks a question like this with the intent of seeking knowledge and they're not asking to cast doubts, then we explore it, inshallah. So if we go back to the story of Musa alayhi salam and his confrontation with Fir'aun, we know that during the festival day, there was a confrontation called where Musa alayhi salam had to confront the magicians of Fir'aun, the Sahara, the sorcerers working in the court of Fir'aun. And Allah Ta'ala mentions these sorcerers in several verses in the Qur'an and how they left their sorcery and became believers. In one verse, Allah Ta'ala says about these sorcerers that when the people were gathered, سَحَرُوا أَعْيُنَ nas, They bewitched with their sorcery the eyes of the people. وَاسْتَرْهَبُوهُمْ And they frightened them. And they came with uh, tremendous magic, mighty magic. What was the form of their magic? What did they do exactly? Who, who knows? With the ropes, they, they made the ropes through this illusion, bewitching the eyes of the people, giving them the impression that the ropes were snakes. So, Fir'aun, uh, so Musa alayhi salam is commanded by Allah Ta'ala to cast down his staff. فَإِذَا هِيَ ثُعْبَانٌ مُبِينٌ And lo and behold, it was this clear, large serpent. And the works of Tafsir mentioned that it, it wasn't some small snake. It was a gigantic snake. And it swallowed up all of the ropes and these fake snakes of the sorcerers and basically showed them what they were dealing with is not magic, but it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
and then they made sajda, they prostrated, and they said, We believe in the Lord of the worlds, of all that exists, the Lord of Musa and Harun. So the answer to this question is that, well, they came with what appeared like snakes. So Allah Ta'ala created a snake from the staff of, of Musa alayhi salam to show the stark contrast between their snakes and this real snake that swallowed them up. So it's to contrast with what they were bringing forth of magic. Could it have been a lion? Of course, that's within the power of Allah Ta'ala. But the wisdom, it seems, is that this snake is a real snake. It consumes these fake snakes that were these optical illusions in, uh, combined with this sorcery and bewitching of the people's eyes. And that was a, quite a contrast for the magicians to see and recognize that this is not ordinary magic. Instead, this is a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah, you can say that. From the, the genus of what they were involved in. Now, okay, next question. This one's uh, address, addressing me in the third person. Uh, please have the Imam answer this in the next Q&A. Uh, I get these directly, so you can third person, second person, it's all fine. Please have the Imam answer this in the next Q&A. This is an ambitious question, by the way. All things related to whether meat in American restaurants, fast food, or other non-Muslim restaurants is considered halal or not. Some scholars say you must prove all three criteria are halal in order for meat to be considered halal, while others say the burden of proof is on the one who says it is not halal. And that if you're in a place such as the southern U.S. or a barbecue place where owners tend to be religious Christians, my father owned a barbecue restaurant, by the way, this would be halal. Also, please answer the question of whether eating non-halal meat is a major or minor sin. Please go into detail on this subject. It is probably the most relevant item for those living in the West. And I hate to disappoint the questioner, but here I am. Inshallah, we will be addressing this issue in detail after Ramadan. In our Fardain program, we're now reaching Module 9, which is all about the halal and the haram. So we talk about the halal and the haram in food items. That's coming, that will be after Ramadan. And in that, module we will talk in great detail about the whole issue of uh, halal and haram food items and the meat of ahlul kitab generally and here specifically in north america so i'm not going to answer the question here much to your disappointment i assume but inshallah you can uh, attend or you can watch the fardain classes when we tackle that question at length inshallah ta'ala but I do want to interrogate the last phrase. The last phrase in the final part of this question, uh, the questioner said, it is probably 
the most relevant item for those living in the West. Now, I'm sure they don't mean the most important thing for Muslims living in the West. But we should question these assumptions just a little bit. When we say this is the most relevant item for those living in the West, I disagree strongly that this is the most relevant issue for Muslims living in the West. Because the, the issue of the meat of Ahlul Kitab and how that is applied to the West today is an issue over which ulama legitimately differ. There are legitimate positions allowing with certain conditions and there are those who disallow it. Right? So that is a legitimate difference of opinion among their ulama. Both of those positions are based on ijtihad. They're based on uh, scholarly expert effort to arrive at a conclusion that is supported by the primary text and understanding the environment that the, the question is based in. So that means ultimately that we don't have as individual Muslims any authority or right to condemn someone who's following an opinion that is legitimate that we may disagree with, right? What is most relevant for Muslims living in the West is not whether they're eating Big Macs or not. The most relevant issue for Muslims living in the West is not whether they go to Chick-fil-A or not. The most relevant issues for Muslims living in the West is preserving their iman and the iman of their children. The most relevant issue for Muslims living in the West is establishing institutions that will lay down firm roots for Islam in North America so that it thrives in the society. The most relevant thing for Muslims in North America is educating themselves in the foundations of their deen and knowing their beliefs and their practices with insight. The most relevant thing for Muslims in North America is not Chick-fil-A. Rather, it is supporting efforts to convey Islam to people in a sound manner, conveying it to the masses, either directly ourselves or by contributing to those projects that actually call people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is not to diminish or belittle the importance of eating halal. Of course not. No one should understand that from my words. All I'm saying is that in the hierarchy of, of needs, the hierarchy of priorities, the issue of meat is one over which scholars legitimately differ. And you have to follow your conviction in that. We'll explore it, inshallah, in great detail. And from there we can have more knowledge about the issue at hand. But I just wanted to interrogate that last phrase a little bit. We should question our assumptions that the most important thing is whether or not we have to go buy halal meat only or we can go to Chick-fil-A or go to Restaurant Depot or, where, or grocery stores, right? Right, we did address it there. Yeah, in addressing it there, I only gave you my view. In the in the Fardain course, I want to give both sides because I think it's important to understand the issue is not so black and white. And inshallah, we'll do that. All right, we come now to the final question.
Final question, the questioner says, is Qur'an recitation after death for the benefit of the deceased a sunnah practice? If not, how come it is allowed, it is an allowed practice in our masajid? I think I've been asked this question at least four times now. Uh, we've addressed it in a couple of classes. I don't remember which ones. But inshallah, I hope that this is the decisive answer. So that if anyone ever asks me again, I'll just say, ask the Imam session for March. The last question, here, there is your answer. Go, go listen to it, inshallah. So the question is, is it permitted to donate the reward of one's recitation of the Qur'an to a deceased person? And will they benefit by you donating the reward of your recitation to them? Or is this a blameworthy innovation, a bid'ah, munkara, and it opposes Islam and the, bin, the reward doesn't reach them at all? So what is this issue called in Arabic? We call it Yisal al-Thawab. And then you see lots of those little Yasin booklets, and on the back it'll say Isar al-Thawab, right? As, as it's pronounced in Pakistan, India. Yeah. Same words, Yisal al-Thawab means conveying the reward of one's good deed, donating that reward to their soul, right? Yeah, and in the Arab world, what you'll often see is people will read an entire khatam of the Qur'an or they divide up the ajza and people read them and then they come together and they say, they say things like, uh, Allahumma ij'al nura ma qara'nahu wa ajra ma talawnahu fi sahifati fulan. O oh Allah, place the, the reward and the light of what we recited in the account of so-and-so, son of so-and-so who passed away. So whether that dua is made in Arabic or English or Urdu or whatever, that's the intention behind it. You, you read those uh, ajza, those chapters with the intention of giving the ajr of what you did to that deceased person. So this is Isal al-Thawab. Now unfortunately, this issue has been one of great controversy in the last, I don't know, yeah, maybe yeah, 30, 40 years. It, it was not controversial prior to that. Uh, people are getting into arguments and debates and they're fighting each other about whether this is legitimate or not. And they cut off ties with people if they, if they do it and they condemn them, they have hostility towards them. And there's no need for any of that, because if you look at the issue classically, as it has been described in the books of fiqh by the fuqaha and their justifications, you see that the issue of donating the reward of your recitation is accepted, an accepted practice in the relied upon positions of the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi'i, Imam Malik, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, radiallahu anhum, it's an acceptable practice. It was always accepted 
as a standard practice within the Hanafi and Hanbali schools. It was differed over a little bit among the Malikiyya of the earlier period in the Shafi'iyya, but even among the Shafi'iyya and the Malikiyya, the relied upon position in those two schools also came to accept it. So I want to quote to you a few passages that prove this. The majority of the fuqaha say that the reward of what you recite does reach the deceased and donating the reward of your recitation is praiseworthy and permissible and in no way a blameworthy innovation. So we quote the words of one of the great Hanbali Imams, one of the greatest Hanbali Imams, Imam Ibn Qudama al-Maqdisi. He's the author of several works in Hanbali fiqh. The greatest of his works is Al-Mughni, which is a very large encyclopedia of not just Hanbali fiqh, but also comparative fiqh. He was a great imam. And he says, and I quote, any act of worship a person does, gifting the reward of it to a deceased Muslim, the deceased will benefit from it, inshallah. As for dua, seeking forgiveness and giving charity for others, or those acts that can be fulfilled on someone else's behalf, I know of no difference of opinion concerning their permissibility. لا أعلم خلافا. I know of no difference of opinion about the permissibility of doing those things. So he goes on to cite certain hadith that show the Prophet ﷺ being asked about donating the reward of certain actions and approving. So he cites a hadith regarding du'a and, uh, sorry, uh, he, recite, he mentions the hadith regarding charity, the hadith from Sayyidah Aisha who tells us the story of Sa'ad ibn Ubadah radiallahu anhu. Sa'ad ibn Ubadah goes to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and says, Ya Rasulullah, my mother died unexpectedly and she didn't leave a will. If I was to give sadaqah on her behalf, will she reap the rewards? What is that? He's doing the action of giving the sadaqah and he's donating the reward. What do we call that? Isal al-thawab. He asked the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Naam, yes. For the hajj, we have the same thing. In the hadith recorded by Imam al-Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ was asked, my mother vowed to make hajj, but she passed away before having the chance to do so. Shall I not perform the hajj on her behalf? He responded, yes. If she had a debt, wouldn't it have to be settled? Meaning if she owed money, wouldn't you have to settle that debt? He said, yes. And the Prophet ﷺ then says, The debt of Allah has more right to be paid. So this is performing hajj on behalf of someone else who was unable to. Likewise for fasting, the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith recorded by Imam Muslim, whoever dies and a fast is due upon him, a reliable family member of his must make it up in his stead. This actually is discussed in great detail in the books of law because they talk about the sick person who thinks they'll get better and they're not fasting for that reason because they're sick but they think they'll get better 
how the family has to be very careful to keep track of those days because if he dies due to that sickness, they will make up those days on his behalf, right? So that is making up the action on behalf of that person. Uh, the same thing goes for freeing slaves when slavery was a, a, a norm. Abdullah ibn Amr once asked the Prophet ﷺ if his deceased father would benefit from the freeing of slaves on his behalf. And the Prophet ﷺ says, Has your, had your father been a Muslim and you emancipated slaves on his behalf, gave charity on his behalf, or performed hajj on his behalf, it would have reached him. It would have reached him. So all of these hadith affirm the root of the issue, which is one person doing a righteous action on behalf of someone else, and that reward being gifted to that person who's deceased. This establishes that that is something not just rationally possible, but it's textually established as a precedent. Now, Ibn Qudama cites these hadith, and he says after mentioning them, if these authentic hadith are proof that the deceased benefits by any act of worship, oh, sorry, in these, in, in these hadith is a proof that the deceased benefit by any act of worship. Now as fasting, hajj, and dua are also bodily acts of worship, and Allah has allowed their benefits to reach the deceased, then such is the case with every other act of worship. You, you see what he's getting at here. He's saying the hadith mention charity, they mention hajj, they mention zakat, they mention freeing slaves. Do they mention reciting Qur'an? There's no hadith that actually says, uh, reciting Qur'an and donating the reward. But you have the precedent in all of these other actions. And that is why Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, another Hanbali scholar, he says, by what, uh, by what textual stipulation, or by what qiyas, or what principle from sharia does one set of actions reach the deceased, but another set does not reach the deceased? In other words... How can you affirm that charity, fasting, hajj, and freeing slaves, the rewards of these things can reach the deceased when you do them on their behalf, but not reciting Qur'an? Right? And if you look at all of these hadith, Al-Izz ibn Abdul Salam notes this. He notes that if you look at these hadith, all of them are coming as questions put to the Prophet wasallam. Each person is coming with a specific action, asking about it, and each of them gets a yes. So by that principle, if someone were conceivably to come and ask about reciting Qur'an, conceivably it would have been a yes as well. Because there's nothing distinct in the act of reciting Qur'an that sets it apart from these other actions. Right? This is the argument of many of the imams. Now some people object, of course, that's why we have people arguing about this. They object by mentioning a couple of what they consider proofs against this. They mention the words of Allah Ta'ala, وَأَنْ لَيْسَ insani إِلَّا مَا سَعَى And that a person will, shall have nothing except what he strives for. 
You have nothing except what you strive for. And they cite the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ who says that when a person dies, all of his deeds are cut off except for three situations. The sadaqa jariya, the recurring charity, knowledge, people benefit from, and the dua of righteous offspring, children who pray for him. So they mentioned that verse and this hadith to say that if you recite the Qur'an and ask Allah to give the reward to the deceased, it won't reach them because they didn't do it. That's the argument. And the majority of the ulama, meaning in the Hanafi, the Maliki, the Shafi'i, and the Hanbali schools, they reply to this by saying, number one, we already see from the other hadith that there are actions that benefit the deceased. We have the hadith of Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, we have the hadith about fasting and about freeing slaves. We have the hadith about making hajj on behalf of the deceased mother. So if you're using this verse to apply it as an absolute, you have to apply it to those two. So how is it that that person can perform hajj on behalf of someone else? How is it that a person can give charity on behalf of someone else? This verse is a general verse, but it's qualified. And it's qualified. It's makhsus, meaning what the person does, they're, they're going to earn what they strive for. It doesn't mean that no one can give them something, right? You're only going to earn the money you work for. You go to work, you earn the money. Does that mean no one can give you a gift of money? Does that mean you, <laughs> no, the only money I can ever take is the money that I earn? You can receive a gift, right? The reading of the Qur'an to donate its reward has nothing to do with the actions of the deceased which are now at an end. It's a gift from the living to the dead. Now, I'll conclude with what Imam Izzuddin ibn Abd salam said about the issue. He says, If it is said, the Prophet ﷺ directed us to fasting and hajj and charity, but not reading the Qur'an, meaning donating the reward of these things are specific to fasting and charity and for pilgrimage, but not reading Qur'an. The reply, he says, is that the Prophet ﷺ didn't initiate such practices except as a response to people's questions. So on one occasion, he was asked about making hajj for the deceased. So he permitted it. On another occasion, he was asked about fasting. So he allowed that too. But he never ruled out other practices for them besides these. He never ruled out. He didn't make it a general rule that actions cannot be donated to the deceased except for this one and this one and this one. You understand? So the understanding of the ulama is that the principle applies that if you do a, a righteous action, you can ask Allah to give the reward of that to the deceased person. So I leave you with the words of the great Shafi'i scholar whom we quote all the time, Imam al-Nawawi. Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah, he discussed this issue and he says that the scholars differed about whether the rewards of the Qur'an reach the deceased. 
The well-known view of a Shafi'i and a group is that it does not. That is an early position among the, some of the early Shafi'iyya. It existed. Whereas the view of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and another group of scholars and a group of Shafi'i scholars is that it does. He concludes, the preferred opinion is for the reciter to say as he completes his recitation, Allahumma awsil thawaba ma qara'tuhu ila fulan. O Allah, donate the reward of this recitation to so and so. So, even if that position did exist in our history, it's not the standard view. So, no one has a right to condemn people for choosing to, uh, to practice what is accepted by the overwhelming majority of the fuqaha across the centuries. A very well argued position as well. And this should be hopefully an answer that settles it, right? No one should be debating this topic. If a person doesn't want to do it, they don't do it. But they have no right to condemn people and argue with people about it and uh, just cause fights assuming that there is only one view that all Muslims must follow. And if you follow the other view, somehow you're a bad Muslim, you are, you're a mubtadir, you're an innovator, you're, you're guilty of heresy and things like that. It's unfounded. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa